Right, so we'll be looking at the pastoral epistles. Uh, naturally, you would have expected me to uh, come to the book of Philippians mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, Philemon, but deliberately have chosen that we do it in reverse. Uh, the pastoral epistles, and particularly second uh, uh, Timothy, is uh, believed to be the very last epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote. So because of uh, the importance attached to the pastoral epistles, especially as their very name suggests that they have something to do with the pastoral ministry, I thought we could start from there. And if there is any uh, time that we will have remaining before we conclude and wind up, then we'll try to squeeze in uh, Philippians and, uh, and uh, Philemon. So, uh, the pastoral epistles. The three letters, the two letters to Timothy and one to Titus, are collectively known as the pastoral epistles. And they are called by that name uh, simply because they have to do uh, with some aspects of pastoral ministry and leadership in the local church. They address areas and concerns that you would expect to encounter in the context of leading a local church. Uh, they contain those words that are addressed to individuals who are functioning uh, within the context of ministry, uh, active ministry providing oversight to specific congregations and the concerns and responsibilities of that ministerial uh, setting. They also contain apostolic directions, instructions uh, that are issued by the Apostle Paul uh, to the doctrinal, ethical, and pastoral welfare of the churches. So that is something that we clearly see uh, in, uh, in, the, in the epistles. There are relevant and uh, insightful uh, directives that come to those who have a role in church leadership. The epistles contain marks of tenderness, empathy, real compassion, and concern for the flock. They contain commands that teach us, that give us instructions on how to conduct the affairs of the ministry that we are to preach and to teach sound doctrine, that which is healthy and will lead to healthy uh, members. They also contain exhortations to those that are serving in such contexts that they must stand firm and be faithful to their calling and in their calling 
They talk about the necessity of purity in those that are serving in the local church. They identify a leadership structure and those that are to serve in that leadership structure as instructed. They testify to the integrity and to the character required of all those that are to serve within that leadership structure. So basically, we see that the pastoral epistles provide the basis for accountability. They provide the basis uh, to which we are to hold all such church leaders. And all these things are addressed against the backdrop of difficulties, discouragements, opposition, and false teaching, which in a sense begins to show to us that those are the realities of ministry. God's word is very realistic. God does not sugarcoat any aspect of our duty and responsibility to him. And the Apostle Paul, in writing to these two young men, makes it abundantly clear that they are not about to step into heaven on earth. But they are stepping into something that sometimes will cause them pain. And Paul lays bare his heart, his mind, and his life, and his very example. But these are the things that one ought to realistically expect as they step into ministry. To think that these are impossibilities for any pastor and that these are things that uh, one must never even think about or even entertain and uh, thoughts must not even be uh, allowed to head in that direction, I think it is to live in a bubble. It is to live in, 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 a, in a world of utopia, which is non-existent as far as ministry is concerned. And perhaps more than any other New Testament book, these letters directly address issues of what we might refer to as practical theology. Pastoral theology. In the way that it is evident and expressed and lived out in the life of Paul and what he expects to see in the life of the immediate recipients of these two, three letters and all those who would want to desire to be in those positions that have to do with oversight and ministry over God's people. So that's what we see uh, from these three episodes. When were they written? Well, approximations for First Timothy and Titus are somewhere between uh, 63 to 65 AD, while Second Timothy is uh, uh, written 
somewhere around AD 66, so it could be a year earlier. And 2 Timothy is the very, believed to be the very last epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote. And uh, he does indicate that uh, he may be on his last lap as far as life is concerned. He's, to all intents and purposes, fought uh, a good fight. He has run the race and finished the course. And he has high expectations of a reward that the righteous God has prepared for him and for all those who long for his appearing. Who were the recipients? Well, Timothy on one hand, two letters. Titus on the other hand, one letter. But let's begin by looking at uh, Timothy very, very quickly. Who was this young man? Well, Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother, and that is made very clear in Acts chapter 16, verse 1. And so that makes him uh, half Jewish, half Gentile. We have no mention of his father being a Christian. But we are told of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, who were both known for their sincere faith, a faith that they passed on to their son and grandson, respectively. We are also told that Timothy was living at a place called Lystra when the Apostle Paul first met him after he visited that city on his very first missionary journey. And at that time, he had already carved for himself a good reputation among the people uh, of Lystra. Was he already a Christian at that time? We cannot tell. But one thing is made very clear that uh, he knew the scriptures because they were taught to him uh, by his grandmother and by his mother. Paul does refer to him uh, many times as my son, my child, my uh, spiritual child and such terminology. Uh, if Paul led him to the Lord, that is not made explicitly uh, clear uh, in uh, both the book of Acts as well as in the epistles themselves. From the very time that uh, the Apostle Paul met young Timothy, uh, he exhibited some high levels of promise for the ministry. And those were recognized early enough by the Apostle Paul. And that is made clear uh, in uh, 1 Timothy 1 verse 18 and uh, chapter 4 verse 14 as well as 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. And it is not surprising 
that the Apostle Paul took him on as a companion. And the young man became one of the Apostle Paul's most trustworthy fellow laborers. And he would even proudly say about Timothy to the Philippians, I have no one like him. I don't know if that can be said of us by our pastors. I have no one like him in terms of his devotion to the Lord, in terms of his devotion to the work of the Lord, in terms of his devotion to the people among whom he is serving. Timothy also became Paul's faithful representative and messenger on a number of occasions. Remember yesterday we saw how he was sent back into the jaws of the lion, so to say. Where the Apostle Paul nearly lost his life in Thessalonica due to the persecution that arose and he had to live under the cover of darkness. But out of concern for the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul sends Timothy, go and find out how they are faring. And Timothy does not say, mm, boss, is, is this the safest time to go back? No. You remember the pessimistic and apprehensive Philip? When word reached the Lord Jesus Christ that Lazarus was, dead, uh, was sick, very sick. The sisters have sent word to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord does not immediately leave for Bethany. Four days later, then he mentions to his disciples, let us go. It was Philip who said, that's, that's where they wanted to kill you. Are you sure? We need to go back in that direction. What Timothy does not say to Paul, wow, it might not be safe. Let things cool down a little bit and then I can go back. No, he heads back. Faithful, responsible young man. When you read the epistles, you, you cannot fail to see that uh, Timothy was a very dear young man to the apostle Paul so dear to him that in the Apostle Paul's last message, last chapter of the last epistle, he sends a very touching appeal for Timothy to join him in his final days of imprisonment. Come quickly, he says to him. That's how dependable he was. That's how much Paul valued his presence, his company. And all support and refreshment that you'd get from such a young man. Timothy already knew and believed the Old Testament scriptures thanks to his mother and grandmother. So he was well taught and well brought up. 
a very promising apprentice. And Paul became a spiritual father to this young man. When Apostle Paul was in prison the first time and he was released, Paul was with Timothy by his side. Evidently, they revisited some of the churches in Asia, including Ephesus, together. And on his departure from Ephesus, the Apostle Paul left Timothy behind to provide leadership to the congregation. And then after an interval, Paul wrote Timothy a letter, First Timothy, urging him on, the, on, urging him on in that ministry. And Timothy may have been by nature uh, somewhat of a timid young man uh, with a temperament that may have been reserved and somewhat fearful. And that's the reason we do find so many encouragements to the young man from Paul, urging him and spurring him into action because Paul knew his potential. So he needed to be affirmed from time to time. And uh, if God places us in a position of responsibility as pastors, and we have those that we are mentoring for the ministry, and we notice their weaknesses, we must come alongside them as Paul did to young Timothy and encourage them and let them come out of their shell and emerge like a fully grown butterfly from its what do you call where the butterfly comes from? From its cocoon and fly to greater heights and usefulness in the hands of the Lord. When Apostle Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians knew Timothy well, he urged the Corinthians in chapter 16, verse 10, to put Timothy at ease when he came to them. He says, when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. He knew the temperament of Timothy, and so uh, Paul wants to get the best help that he can for him and to be surrounded by people that appreciate him and are not simply pointing out in his life all that is wrong without acknowledging and commending him in those things that were good. What about Titus? What do we know about him? Well, far less than we do about Timothy. But at least we do know that his father was a Gentile and that he may have been one of Paul's converts. And like Timothy, he was Paul's apprentice. 
where he became a believer, we do not know. Uh, but evidence does point to the fact that he may have come to know the Lord through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Nothing is known about his family. Nothing is known about his background, except that he was a Gentile. And so we are told in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3, As is the case with uh, Timothy, Titus was a trustworthy co-laborer for the Apostle Paul and with the Apostle Paul. He was given one of Paul's most difficult and delicate assignments to represent the Apostle Paul in troubled Corinth. And during the time between Paul's Roman imprisonments, he was imprisoned twice, released after the first one, and never made it alive out of the second one. So in between those two imprisonments, uh, Paul visited Crete with Titus, whom he left behind to further the work the two had begun. And some time later, during Paul's second imprisonment, Titus left Crete to travel to Dalmatia, according to 2 Timothy 4.10, presumably for evangelistic purposes. And that is what we know about this young man, Titus. Well, what was the occasion for both of these, or for three, or these first and second and then Titus? Yes. Well, sometimes we, we feel uncomfortable with certain terms because of their misuse uh, in certain quarters. Uh, Paul is not at all ashamed to call himself a spiritual father to Timothy, nor to Titus. He's not ashamed at all. And uh, it's communicating simply a context of uh, a relationship. Remember yesterday, Paul says to the, uh, the Thessalonians, like a fa we, we treated you like a father. And uh, if God is our father, then the characteristics that uh, show the fatherliness of God to us are things that we who are fathers must also show to our children and things that pastors must not feel ashamed to show to their flock. So it's a relationship of one who is mentoring and one who is... Uh, uh, bringing up spiritually another person to the level of maturity. And Paul told the Corinthians that they owe their faith to him, that he fathered them without any apology. But I think we live in a time when uh, uh, spiritual father, papas, are uh, is synonymous with the fact that I, I, I patronize you, I rule over you, 
and uh, I, I, I give you the instructions and you must listen to me. Uh, you do not have your own freedoms and rights. I call the shots and you follow. Almost a relationship which uh, with the son, the spiritual son, following sometimes even blindly uh, without exercising uh, any discernment uh, whatsoever. Uh, I remember back home, one of the young ladies who is no longer young anymore, she's married with a number of children, and her husband is a deacon in Pasakonra uh, uh, Dimbewe's church. And so we have known her from way back when she was just a first-year student in, uh, in college. And my wife evangelized to her, and she professed faith and was discipled by, by my wife. We were just ourselves two, two to three years in marriage. So from that time on, she calls uh, my wife mom in a spiritual sense. So uh, one of her daughters came visiting home for a sleepover. Uh, very intelligent little girl. I think she's in third grade or so. And, and, and she <laughs> says to my wife, why does mom call you mom? Because she has another mother. Why does she call you mom? <laughs> so my wife said, well, this is where it came from. And explained to her, so I am her spiritual mother. <laughs> and then sharp girl said, so if I become a Christian, you will become my spiritual grandmother? <laughs> you know? So you see, that's... that's a child who understands that very well, but sadly, sometimes as, 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 as adults, we, we always are thinking of uh, that, those charismatic papas. And, and, and usually, those who call them papas, and the fact that they pride in being called papas, it is with all the wrong connotations of paparism, if such a word exists. So, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I'm quite comfortable to be happy to be a spiritual father to someone and with a very clear understanding. But if someone feels stumbled that I'm probably trying to wear this, the, the shoes of the so-called papas, then uh, I'll be careful not to use my freedom to stumble another brother. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very innocent uh, term uh, to use. And, and Paul, not in the least, uh, feels, you know, ashamed to use it. He doesn't feel ashamed to use it at all. Timothy, the occasion and purpose. In, uh, in First Timothy, Paul stated two purposes for writing or summarizing them. There are many purposes, but we can summarize uh, the purposes in that uh, he, he wants to show Timothy the identity of the false teachers uh, that he had warned him about. 
Paul had warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 verse 30 that false teachers would arise even from within their own body. So when he writes to Timothy, he says, Timothy, you need to be directed to give a vigorous personal opposition to the false doctrine that is developing in Ephesus. Just as Paul had warned earlier on that had happened, give vigorous personal opposition to the false doctrine developing in Ephesus. And uh, when he does write to him, Paul uh, even ages the excommunication of uh, people like Hymenaeus and Alexander who apparently were influential leaders of the Ephesian church. His emphasis on the personal qualifications of leaders just shows that he is concerned to make sure that only the godly, the best, make it there. So he's giving Timothy those directions. Uh, secondly, he is instructing Timothy about the kind of behavior that should characterize Ephesian believers as members of God's household. Paul is hopeful that he will reunite with Timothy, but uh, if that reunion is in any way delayed, he says you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress or foundation of the truth. So these are things that Timothy must know about church, about the conduct of people in church, about all the affairs of church life. Now, the presence and the rapid development of the false teachers uh, in Ephesus provided both the occasion and the purpose for Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I aged you when I was going to Macedonia, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So that, that provides both the occasion and the purpose of the statement that Paul is making there in verse 3 of chapter 1. So probably the situation in Ephesus consisted of... Uh, uh, multiple house churches that were falling under the sway of these erring teachers, false teachers. And so Paul's words provided guidelines on meeting that challenge and these double-dealing, fake uh, 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 teachers and leaders, pretenders and charlatans were to be dealt with. And how they are to be dealt with is with the use of scripture, by the use of sound doctrine. And when Paul makes statements such as he does in verses 7 to 8 of First Timothy, he's providing information to Timothy in the, on the nature of the false teaching and these false teachers. These problem makers and troublemakers who it appears we are Jewish in background, claiming to have an interest in the law as they observe the dietary laws and restrictions, chapter 4, verse 3, 
as they claimed to have access to some superior exalted knowledge in chapter 6, verse 20 to 21, and expended their energies in word battles. Chapter 6 and verse 4. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an, an, an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. So apparently, uh, a strain of Greek influence caused uh, the false teachers to disparage the body and prohibit marriage. Chapter 4, verse 3. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and in prayer. So did they imbibe some forms of asceticism or Gnostic uh, uh, lest teachings, probably. Uh, and so we, with, with such perverse individuals strategically placed comments and statements are made by the Apostle Paul so that uh, Timothy may be established firmly in the church and oppose all those that are teaching heresy, error, and false doctrine. And the emphasis of the, of the Apostle Paul is teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And this is a truth that Timothy already knew. It was nothing new. He already knew and not only did he know it, he saw it in the Apostle Paul's life. So the need for Presenting a committed Christian lifestyle in uh, contrast with the corrupt, self-seeking practices of the false teachers provided the occasion and purpose for the statement that Paul makes in chapter 3 and verse 15. So 1 Timothy provides us with the information on the identity of the false teachers, the characteristics of their error, and gives us an understanding that when these are put into consideration, they give an explanation for the reason why Paul has written this letter. This is why Paul has written this letter. There are those who are gullible. There are those that are defenseless. There are those that are vulnerable in Ephesus to this wrong teaching go and set things right. Set things straight. What about Titus? The occasion and purpose. Uh, the content of Titus is similar to two, but much briefer than that of First Timothy. There are, of course, uh, a few uh, variations. Uh, there are two sections, uh, Titus 2, 11 to 14, and chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, which uh, uh, are not uh, in, uh, in uh, First Timothy, uh, uh, not even uh, a hint in, in that sense. Uh, so Paul had left Titus behind in Crete in order to appoint elders, and the statement that he uses is uh, 
that you may put what remained into order or straighten what is crooked. And what remained that needs to be put in order is the appointment of elders in every town, just as the Apostle Paul had directed him. And uh, the church in Crete was much younger and far less organized than the church in Ephesus. So you can imagine uh, where young Titus was beginning from, you know, from scratch, so to say. There are evidences of false teaching in the background, but the threat is less urgent and less menacing than the one which was at Ephesus, uh, which we see in First Timothy. Uh, Paul does describe uh, those who are teaching error and they are teaching false doctrine in uh, chapter 1, 10 to 16, as well as chapter 3, verse 9 to 11. And the purpose for Paul to write this letter to Titus was to instruct him to appoint and train the newly appointed elders of the Cretan church. It was to reprove the uh, 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 heretics of their error, chapter 1, verse 9. But Titus was also to rebuke the false teachers, chapter 1, verse 13. And because the false teaching was less menacing in its nature, it is very evident that this letter lacks the agent appeals that appears in First Timothy, such as fight the good fight, and what has been entrusted to your care, and all such statements as was seen in First Timothy. Uh, one antidote to the spread of the heresy in Crete was the demonstration of a godly lifestyle by the believers. And so the Apostle Paul does stress uh, that very bit. Uh, for example, in 2, 11 to 14, Paul reflects upon the theological meaning of the historical work of the Lord Jesus Christ as it applies to the believer's behavior in this present life, in this evil age, and our hope for complete redemption at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Titus is reminded that the aim of Christ's death was to produce a people that are eager to do what is good. In chapter 3, verse 3 to 7, Paul clearly set forth the Christian's motivation for good works, simply that God has saved us, renewed us with the Holy Spirit, and has given us the hope of eternal life. Uh, while such similar statements are absent in First Timothy. So the occasion for writing Titus appears in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Second Timothy, the occasion and the purpose. When we come to 2 Timothy, Paul's final epistle, the 
mode is totally different from the other two. It's totally different. The Apostle Paul had uh, apparently been arrested again after knowing some time of freedom, after his first imprisonment, and now he's, he's back in prison. And uh, he's gone through a preliminary hearing, chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, and there are every indication that uh, he might not come out of prison alive. Chapter 4, verse 6 to 8. And he speaks of it with those beautifully sobering words. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. It's a somber mood. It's as if uh, a father is sitting down with his son after battling cancer for so many years and says to his son, son, I don't think I have much long to live. But here are my final words that I would like to live with you. And then rehearses those words in the hearing of a son. And hours or days later, he's, he's no more. So that's, that's, that's what we find here. Paul had been treated unevenly, unjustly, and abandoned by some of the Christian friends from whom he had expected so much. Of course, some had sacrificed greatly to minister to him, but others, perhaps, the first brothers had abused and deserted him. He felt lonely, for most of his close friends had left on specific ministries. And when he appeals to Timothy and says, I need you here and do your best to come before winter. It was cold and that's why he asks for his coat as well as the scrolls. You could almost feel a sense not of despair but a sense of being let down by those that you expect so much from. For Demas in love with this world has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. What a reason to abandon your good friends. Because of the love of this present world. But is, is, is Paul despairing? No. 
He is resolute. He has hope. He has faith. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's not a man who has lost hope. He will safely bring me into his heavenly kingdom. The problem in the church at Ephesus had worsened. There was widespread defection from commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ as seen in chapter 1 and verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among them, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. The deceitful and meddlesome Hymenaeus has been excommunicated, who was excommunicated in chapter uh, 1, verse 20 of 1 Timothy, continued to spread his injurious teaching among the faithful like a cancer. Chapter 2, verse 17 to 18. Hymenaeus, oh, and, and their talk was spread like gangrene. Among them, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Could this be the two gentlemen who had falsified that letter and sent it to Thessalonica claiming it was written by Paul and saying the resurrection has already taken place? We may never know. Although these heresies have continued, you notice that Paul doesn't dwell so much on the heresy. But he focuses his interest on Timothy. To build him up, to strengthen him. Yes, false teachers hovered in the background, but Timothy, do what you have to do. Do the work of the ministry. Have a firm conviction and belief in the sufficiency of Scripture to see you through all the challenges of the ministry. You know these scriptures so well because the word of God is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You have followed my teaching. You have followed my conduct. You have followed my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned 
it and are firmly believed, knowing from whom you lent it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Look to God, rely on the scriptures and their sufficiency. You will be complete and equipped for every good work. So the focus and interest is on Timothy. 